Welcome back to the Digital Die Podcast, a conversation about tech. My name is Darsh. I am one of your hosts. My name is Jacqueline. I'm your other host. And in this week's episode, we're talking all things Facebook. So there's been this giant whistleblower trial going on around Facebook right now. So we're going to be talking about that, the outage that occurred right around then, and then also Facebook's Instagram for kids and why they halted production on that project. And then we'll close out with some high-level cringe of an Intel ad that just came out. If you like what you hear this episode, make sure to hit that follow button on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts and make sure that you get notified for every episode that we do. It also helps get the show out to more people. Really appreciate it. Roll the intro. This is a bit of a heavier topic, so Darsh and I are just going to try to approach this with just the best we can, and we also want to make clear before we start, legally, like these are just our opinions. We obviously don't know all the nuance of the situation. This is just our take on what we've seen. Let's just hop into talking about the whistleblower trial that is happening like literally as we record this episode. So pretty much it's come to a point where I feel like social media has become such a toxic place for so many people, despite age, like looking at it from myself, someone who's 21 years old versus looking at my younger cousin who's like 13 or 12 and seeing how these different social media platforms tend to influence and in some cases cause mental illness for so many youngsters and so many people just growing up surrounded by all these different social media platforms. And so as a result of it, we now have a Facebook whistleblower, someone who's come forward to talk about how Facebook has acknowledged in the past that they do understand that their platforms can cause issues for kids and for teenagers and how they still continue to go forward with their marketing, with the way that they run each platform, how the algorithm works and so on and so forth. So Jacqueline, like, what are your thoughts? Quick trigger warning for everyone. We're going to be talking about content relating to self-harm, eating disorders, et cetera. So proceed with caution. I think when you have a company and just generally speaking, and then we'll kind of specify to Facebook that makes money by keeping you on the platform, that incentivizes extreme content because as humans, we're drawn to like extreme emotions. Outrageous content gets put to the top because it keeps you on the platform longer. And so when your goal as a company is to make money, that's often at odds with like what the most ethical thing to do is, in my opinion. So that's like the high level. But I also think like, so I'm not excusing Facebook, but I just think that's probably why it's happened. But I also, I don't think running a company just for profits is okay. I think when you're that big of a company, you have to also care about ethics and what you're doing to your users. And that's kind of where this whistleblower trial comes in. So to give everyone a little context, basically, the person that has come forward has wanted to talk about trial safety, but also riots and how Facebook can kind of stoke extremist views. And and we've kind of all heard the meme of like your aunt or your uncle like posting something insane on Facebook. And it's kind of like Facebook has become like the platform that people associate most with extremist and fake news. And it's not that other platforms are immune from it, but I guess Facebook's algorithm specifically and the way that they monitor content and how many people are on the platform often leads to extreme content being shared. No, exactly. So Senator Richard Blumenthal, I think that's how you pronounce the name, shared the results of a test that his own staff had done, which was pretty much creating a dummy account on Instagram as a teenage girl. And they found actually as a result, there were a ton of Instagram posts being bombarded towards them about eating disorders, self-harm, and a bunch of other stuff that could really affect someone's mental health, especially as a teenage girl growing up. I feel like if you're constantly seeing eating disorders, self-harm, and all these other really destructive posts, from the algorithm that's just feeding it to you, like what else are you going to see from the world? It comes to a question of like Instagram and Facebook just blatantly 
ignoring the fact that this is all showing up within the algorithm or are they actively seeing this and are just like, this is okay. And also because there's so much content posted on Facebook in general, the person was saying that they're incredibly understaffed to be able to handle all of it. So she was saying that they can only really handle one third of the amount of things that they know about. Mm -hmm. And there's probably even more they don't know about. Not only is maybe the algorithm promoting bad content, but then also like, how do you regulate that? It's a very complex thing. But what she was saying in her testimony is that she believes that Facebook on its own won't do anything to improve the situation because they care more about increasing their ad revenue and what's best for them. And that's a little bit of odds of what's best for people. So she kind of thinks that government regulation is needed. Also, what they were saying in the article is that right now the algorithm is an engagement-based algorithm, which basically means that it promotes content that you engage with the most. So what Darsh was saying about the senator that created that fake Instagram account with a 13-year-old girl, they had that account engaged with some eating disorder-based content. And then because of that, the algorithm saw that that user was engaging with that. So then it just kept promoting more. And it creates a cycle where you see it. And I kind of see it on my page where if I like an artist like Taylor Swift and I like, like a bunch of posts relating to her and performances, my entire Explore page can become content surrounding that. And it's because if they show you more and more content that you engage with, you're going to stay on the platform longer. So what they were saying is you really, we need to switch from an engagement-based algorithm to a more ethical algorithm, Mm -hmm. and that would significantly decrease the amount of time that people spend on the platform, which then decreases ad revenue and things like that. When they were talking about these monitors, like these people who would be kind of going through Facebook content and deciding whether or not it would be suitable for the platform, there was also a conversation brought up about how Facebook has the resources and the capital to invest into creating like an actual model or hiring more people to do this because there's just so much going on. They don't want to put more problems on their plate. There was even talk of how Facebook could go about fixing this. The issue is that right now at a $40 billion revenue structure, they would actually lose revenue, but it wouldn't cause them to go non-profit. Like they would still be producing profit, but, and I quote, it just wouldn't be ludicrous profit. What sucks is that there are a lot of really good people that work at Facebook, but the company as a whole culture is set by the top level people. And if there's an emphasis on making profits and that's like the goal for every team, like let's say each team is like, all right, we want to increase our revenue by X percent by the end of the quarter. That does not incentivize you to try to add more work to your plate, like by adding in better systems to get content. Unless the goals of the company change or there's some type of regulation put in, it's hard to imagine a system where this doesn't get worse. No, absolutely. There's just so many different structural issues for Facebook that kind of just cause this as an issue. They're saying that like they're stuck in a cycle where it struggles to hire, which I I feel like isn't necessarily the case. I feel like a lot of people would die to go work at like Facebook. Like that would be one of like their goals, right? I feel as though Facebook doesn't want to hire more people because they can see that what's going on right now is okay. They don't care to hire more people. But what is a result, at least what the whistleblower has said is that it causes understaffed projects, which causes more scandals, which then makes it harder to hire more people. So I guess in, a, in that case, it does kind of make sense. A pattern of behavior which shows that Facebook is unable to hire people because of the scandals that are being caused seems like an easy solution, don't you think? Hire more people to stop the scandals so that Facebook becomes a safe place. Like what's so hard to understand about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there is a level of nuance there that's like difficult for people to figure out because also the algorithm is kind of like an AI based algorithm where like it's a very complex algorithm and that's why it's so good at recommending content that you're interested in. So I think it also becomes like they're going to have to change the actual algorithm that runs the entire platform. And I think it will be hard to know what changes will cause different profit decreases. Like a lot of companies use Facebook for really targeted advertising, which means that they need to take a lot of information about the people that use the platform to figure out if you'd be in the target demo. And then they also need you on for a long enough time to be exposed to multiple ads. So I don't know how severely their revenue would be cut. And again, I don't think it's problematic if their revenue gets cut. 
I don't think that they should solely exist to make money. Every social media has an obligation and any company honestly has an obligation to be moral and to not make the world like much worse than you found it. I'm just interested to see where the trial goes because it seems like a lot of the people in Congress are very pro like regulating Facebook and figuring out a way to change what's going on right now. And it's interesting to me also that Facebook is a company that everyone's focusing on. And I think it's because Facebook maybe is like the worst offender, but Every social media promotes sensationalized content. Twitter does, YouTube, TikTok, like every social media. When you have user-generated content being posted at the scale of which it's posted, there will always be content, at least currently, that goes against community regulations or shows violence or is extremist or is fake information. And honestly, every company's algorithm is engagement-based, right? Because they want to show you content that you're going to be more likely to engage with. Yeah, absolutely. That's the difference between now and 50 years ago when everyone was seeing generally the same thing on TV. Like everyone saw generally the same programs and ads and stuff. But because now we all get our own individualized type of content, it can kind of separate people. And so that's, I think, why also there's more like differences among us than there has ever been before. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement, but there's a lot of different, like there's definitely been periods in history where there's been more, but we're definitely at a very divided time. And that's the thing too, right? Like when you have user generated content, like an algorithm is using the push towards people with those interests, you pretty much get two different groups. You get multiple different groups where each of them are being served a different set of information than the other. And there's no one really regulating it clearly, right? Like that's what the entire conversation, but there's no regulation. In a world like today where technology and the internet is accessible to literally everyone. Like I remember when I started school, it was really, really hard to get on the internet at school without having to like disclose to the teacher what you planned on doing. Now it's very much like you show up and sit in class and the teacher starts handing out iPads. You have constant access to the internet. You have constant access to all these different things. And as a kid growing up, my biggest thing with this entire situation is just how Facebook is dealing with the kids. Kids feed off of what they see. They feed off of what they're interacting with. And if they're only ever interacting with content that is either going to divide them or that's going to create and incite violence or uh, discrimination against other groups, it kind of messes with you on like a fundamental level, especially when you're growing, right? It's just crazy to me to see it. I mean, I'm kind of like in like the demographic that they're talking about a lot. Mm -hmm. Obviously. I'm a little older now, right? Seven years ago when I was 13, I was already on Instagram, probably. I can't actually remember the exact time, but I was definitely on Instagram like during middle school and the algorithm was much less mature back then. But I can't even imagine like being a 13 year old now with how mature the algorithm is because it's very easy if you click on one post about mental health to immediately get a ton of other posts about mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think also for guys, I mean, obviously it affects guys too, but even just like for expectations of like the opposite gender, like if you're constantly seeing like super, super fit models, men or women, I think it also creates like unrealistic expectations. And then like that can promote a culture of like body dysmorphia and never feeling you're enough. There's a lot of mental health things and it's not new. I mean, like magazines have always kind of done that to people, but now you're just exposed to it at such a high level. I mean, for you, Darch, like you're very into like fitness and working out like is your explore page very fitness focused. It actually is. It's a, it's a lot of fitness focused stuff. And at times I really find it appreciative and other times I'm like, it's really discouraging. It's like all these people are saying that these are all the steps you need to take and then like, you'll be there and then it's just not, you don't see that progress and it's, it kind of puts you back a little bit. It's crazy too, to see, like, I barely look at my explore feed to be pretty honest with you I, I barely look at it and it's mostly because like i don't want them to serve me up content that's going to put me down i remember i was like just in like a funk last year i was just in a complete funk and i was just feeling really really low and moody and i was on tiktok it's not even facebook at this point it's literally tiktok and i liked one post that was like very introspective and very like trying to be reflective about life and trying to like get these deep thoughts and my entire for you page started turning into that and it just started feeding into this like mood and this like funk where I just felt so low all the time. It doesn't even just affect like the kids. It affects everyone at this point. Totally. Then also with the entire thing of like feeding you content based on what you're seeing, 
it really does also promote like heteronormative stereotypes for both genders. There's a very common, or at least for me, like I like to ask this question to a lot of people, like what is your perspective of being a man? Because everyone looks at it differently. Like it's all based on how you grew up, what you've seen growing up. In most situations, you're surrounded by the people around you, which will indicate what you see as like being a man or being a woman. Mm -hmm. You go on Instagram and you get all of these things just overly emphasized to you all the time. It's breeding, in some cases, toxic masculinity. I can only imagine like what also would happen to the women growing up watching all these things and seeing all these things. What will push them? It just creates this whole divide of like, you don't really know who you are. It creates this really huge sense of just, I don't know, confusion. 100% yes. Going off your point of like, if you're in not the best mental space, I've literally seen it where I, I've clicked on a post and then like the content after it's all like much more depressing. Whereas if you're in a good space and all the content's positive. So it kind of just keeps you where you are because that's going to keep you on the platform more. Mm -hmm. So problematic. And then also exactly what you're saying, like with gender norms, I think you see a lot of that. I think it literally affects also the way we view friendships. And that also goes back to like the people that are posting content. Everyone feels the need to like show their best life on social media. We've seen this countless times where there's like, a couple on social media and maybe you're like jealous. And then in reality, like they hate each other or it's just not going well mm -hmm. that's also problematic because then that content gets surfaced i feel like a lot of people go on social media to feel connected to people but then also a little bit is like self-sabotage because if you go on certain things you'll just feel worse about your life yeah and that's kind of addictive in its own way misery loves company no absolutely like the thing is we as human beings are social we need social interaction and especially during quarantine too where it became a point where everyone was always on social media to have any interaction to have any interaction with friends it's all you see so like especially during COVID, like I know a lot of people went through very hard times and it pushed people to the brink of breaking. I can only imagine what being on social media all the time was doing to that. Like you're on TikTok and then like you see one thing that's about, I don't know, about being in a very depressed state of mind and it pushes you. It's almost like self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. Have you ever heard the saying, you are a representation of, the, of your five best friends? Yes. Social media is like one of them. Yeah. Social media becomes one of your best friends. It becomes one of the people that kind of shapes and influences you. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on and you're just following all these patterns and you're following this algorithm, it puts you into a different space and it can really, really mess you up. And I can only imagine if Facebook knew all this and how they're just keeping going for profit. It seems like a very evil thing to do without sounding a little drastic or dramatic. It sounds very evil. Yeah, dude. Like if I think about like sometimes I'll see something on social media, it will be like, something that sucks and I'm like oh my god like I'm so angry that the world's like this and then I'm like wait like I've never personally experienced that which is not to say that it hasn't happened sometimes it can also kind of harness our empathy you care about too many causes and it makes you kind of feel hopeless about what's going on mm -hmm. right like if you constantly are seeing bad news every day on social media I think it can kind of like make you feel hopeless and it's really important to like know about all the issues that are going on in the world but I also think that there's like timing and dosage and I think like social media incentivizes you to get way too high of a dosage and yeah that's basically what the trial is all about we need someone to come in here and regulate it so Facebook can do what it does well which is connecting people but not do what it doesn't do well which is promote bad content and not care about the effects on people and I think a lot of people also like kind of felt this when the Facebook outage happened there was a blackout of basically Facebook Instagram and WhatsApp there was kind of a mixed reaction one was like we're finally free like let me get all social media and then the other one was I'm addicted and literally I've opened up the app 15 times and I just can't get on mm -hmm. and both were problematic to me like the first one is like that sucks because obviously social media is going to be here like how can we make it so it doesn't feel like people are trapped because I've definitely felt that way sometimes or I'm like some social media is bad for me but I feel like if I'm not on it 
there's like FOMO. But then on the other hand, it's like, we're so addicted to it. Like we just open it mindlessly so many times when it was down. What were your kind of feelings? Like which side were you on during the blackout? I was on the side of, okay, great. I don't have to go on Instagram right now. Let me go to Twitter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest thing too. So like going on more of a lighter note, like did you see Twitter's tweets during the blackout? Yeah. Oh my God. So freaking good. It was so funny. It was literally just Twitter commenting on the fact that like Instagram and Facebook were down. I saw the funniest tweets responding to it. Like you see every single like verified account oh just God, like yes. replying to Twitter being like, hey, we're here too. And Instagram's like, yeah, we're going through a rough day, but <laughs> we're here as well. Like all these different like companies. And I just thought it was like a very funny way to look at it, but also it was just really jokes. Yeah. Like McDonald's was on there. Oh my God. Twitter tweeted out, hi friends. And then I think McDonald's was like, how can I take your order today? Twitter responded with, could I make an order for 56.8 million <laughs> of my friends? Yeah, I saw that. That was so good. And then Twitter was like, hello, literally everyone. And that's now the sixth most liked tweet ever. Because it's crazy because everyone either switched to, I feel like at least they switched from either Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp, and they went to Twitter or TikTok to get their content. Yeah. TikTok for the entertainment, Twitter for the news and the updates and the checking in on people. Totally. It was very, very cool to see. I mean, with that entire situation, supposedly it's a D- it was a DNS failure or like some issue with their DNS system. DNS stands for domain networking system. So it's it's a basis for like going on the internet. So their basic fundamental keeping the platforms on online had an issue. It was fixed after a couple of hours, but at the same time, it was like an Instagram blackout. And I feel like I'd never seen something that long. It was the largest blackout to date. I read somewhere that it also like kicked out their domain. So no one was able to communicate because everyone like, let's say would have like Darsh at Facebook.com as like their email. And then they had no ability to contact other people. So it also made it so difficult for them to figure out how to get it back online. Yeah. They actually had to use different Facebook employees who came forward and were like, yeah, like we ended up using like our Facebook provided Outlook emails because that was the only platform where we communicate with each other, which I can only imagine made that communication process so much longer, especially in COVID where like many people are still working from home. Most people are. Yeah. Also, I I just feel like sometimes in person, it's much easier to handle a problem and like allocate different people to do different tasks. Whereas if you're all remote, like, I don't know, it's it just, it's harder. I, I can't imagine what that must've been like for the top people that really had to handle it. Oh, absolutely. But that's the thing though. Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp had a huge blackout. It was kind of crazy. I hope everyone did enjoy the kind of release from social media. I know they probably set up like a goal or something. They're like, okay, we need to be up in like three or four hours. <laughs> you know who else set a goal? We did. We did. We set a goal <laughs> for this podcast to hit 150 ratings on Apple Podcasts before the end of the year, guys. So if we hit this goal, we plan to do a huge live chat with all the Digital Dive listeners to answer questions, celebrate, you know, maybe have some cold brew or maybe some espresso. So help us hit this goal by rating us now while we take a quick break to grab a cold brew and for me, a nice little espresso shot. And when we come back, we're going to be talking all about Facebook, Instagram, kids. So pretty much that entire process and that project that was going on, as well as this really, really cringeworthy Intel ad, which actually I thought was really funny. We'll be right back and we'll talk to you guys soon. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Diving into another semi-heavy topic. Let us know what you guys think of this episode. We thought it was important to cover it and not ignore this like massive news topic. So Instagram for kids, basically the head of Instagram said they're pausing work on that and they still think it's an important thing, but they're pausing work on it. And it came around the same time that the Facebook files came out, like that Wall Street Journal expose. So Darsh and I were just talking a little bit off podcast about what this must be doing to kids, but let's bring that conversation to the podcast. And so the thing with Facebook's idea for Instagram with kids is to kind of present like a a kids alternative, kind of like YouTube kids, I feel like, Mm -hmm. where things are a lot heavier monitored and it's more of an open space for kids. But when they came out with the expose on the Wall Street Journal talking about Facebook and its implications on kids currently, they decided to pause the program. And I feel like part of that, at least for me, what I've seen, what I've interpreted it as, and again, this is like a huge scam, like a lot of this is just our speculation and our just like our opinions on the matter. 
But I feel like Facebook kind of realized that they had to take a pause on it because a lot of what the Facebook whistleblower case is about is how negative and how destructive it can be to be on social media as a young kid. And creating an Instagram for kids is just going to incentivize more kids to come to the platform, ultimately have more stereotypes and more things offered to them that they shouldn't necessarily be seeing at such a young age. I also think another thing is that social media content is shorter form. So in terms of like developing your attention span, attention spans are continuously decreasing as time goes on. When we were growing up, we were exposed to Disney Channel or like these longer form, like 20 or 30 minute shows. And now kids are exposed to five minute YouTube videos and six second reels. And if that's like the majority of like what makes up your stuff that you consume, I think that that also probably has an effect on how long you're able to focus and how much stimulation you require to like enjoy something. Oh no, absolutely. And then also it creates like these figureheads and it creates these people that kids will look up to as role models. Like I looked at TikTok. So I've spoke about this last week too, I believe. I used to work at a day camp. And so like, I'd see these kids who like had TikTok before even I had TikTok. And they were talking about these TikTok dances and these thirst traps and all these different things that people were doing. And I was like, you're watching that as like a (laughs) seven-year-old. Like that's a little messed up. It's giving these kids like role models to look up to who necessarily shouldn't be role models. Like I think Bryce Hall can do whatever he wants, but I don't think he should be a role model for kids. Yet 90% of his audience is probably kids at this point. Yeah, They just think what he does is funny. I don't think encouraging and pushing drinking and abusing substances to that degree should be something that kids should look up to or want to aspire to be like when they hit their 20s. Dude, yes. A lot of the maybe less great vloggers and not just talking about Bryce, but like people in general that maybe have like the party animal behavior tend to have very young audiences like Jake Paul did as well. And those are very impressionable audiences. So I think creating a dedicated app, I kind of go both ways on it because on the one hand, I just know that kids are using Instagram under 13. So maybe having an app for them that limits like ads and stuff is a good thing. But then on the other hand, I'm like, God, like, don't create this. Let's just better figure out how to get kids not on social media. So I'm taking a marketing class right now. And one of the things we were talking about was value proposition. When we were talking about value proposition, we were also breaking down like general terms, like marketing strategy. Funny enough, when you're a baby and you're registered with the hospital, you start receiving free products, free trials, samples of all these different brands, like these big brand names of baby products. And so from a young age, you're already seeing all these ads, you're seeing all these brands. And by the time you're like four or five, you will have a distinct preference of which brand you like, what you like and what you don't. And I think that having an Instagram for kids where kids can go on and be social with their friends online and still access advertising is just going to push them to a whole new degree of like consumerism. Like you're literally creating these kids and giving them this mindset of I need A, B, C, D, E, F, G all the way to the end of the freaking alphabet. No kid needs to be bombarded with advertising. Yeah. There's a reason that Disney Channel has like a five minute break for commercials. And that's it when it comes to like in between the things. And it's normally commercials for their own show. They're normally promoting other Disney shows. Or very, very child centric advertising like Kids Bob and stuff like that. Things that are actually kind of beneficial, like alternatives to mainstream things. I can only just imagine what kids would be experiencing if they were on Instagram Kids and they're seeing like a Pampers ad. I feel like that would be the funniest thing. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you're telling kids that they need Pampers. What are they going to do? Go cry to their parents that they need Pampers and they're going to get Pampers. Like, I don't know. I feel like we don't need to push that onto kids at such a young age. I feel like they already have it so embedded into their ecosystem from birth. I don't think we really need to do that anymore. I feel like that's that's just pushing it a little bit too far. I remember growing up as a kid, like the ads were like what you were saying. And then as I got older, the ads became like a lot more medical products and insurance and all these other things mm-hmm. like on TV. And now you could be exposed to all of that on any social media if like 
they're trying to target a specific demographic or if you don't write your age. It's weird for me to say because like my career is social media, but I think that there should be an age in which like you have to wait to join. Absolutely. I think as an eight-year-old, it's much more problematic to be on Instagram than 13. And I, I think in general for all of us, like no one is immune to the bad things. I think there are pros and cons of social media. We gain a lot from it, but we also lose some things with it. And if there is a way to regulate it so there's less losses and more gains, I think we should do it. That's probably a very popular opinion. It's just like, how do we actually get this done? Because it's such a complicated, nuanced thing. But I think stopping the production on Instagram for kids was a good move. I think it was a great move. I think there should be more verification though on like when you're signing up because there's absolutely kids that are under the age of 13 who are signing up. Like there's no two ways around totally. it. They'll just lie about their age. They'll just put it a couple years earlier and then they're in. I mean, I won't even lie. I did that for Facebook when I first started out. I think you had to be I think 14 to create a Facebook account. And I was like 13 or 12. I was like moving schools. I wanted to keep in touch with all my friends who had Facebook accounts. I made a Facebook with a fake age. And it's a thing and kids can do it. And it's so easy. There's no second verification. There's nothing. There should be. There should be. It's like saying, okay, you've read the terms of agreements, which include the fact that you have to be 13. I didn't even know Instagram had an age limit until recently. That is messed up to me. Like the, this should be blatantly clear to so many kids because I don't mean this in like a lighthearted, this will ruin people's lives. You're putting children in front of mass amounts of content that will, for one, I, Jack and I were talking about this off the podcast, attention span. Attention span is a huge thing. And when you're a kid, you're getting used to like being focused for hours and hours and end. Like otherwise you're not able to finish school. Mm -hmm. You won't be focused or productive. But now you're getting all these short form pieces of content that are literally pushing you towards like scrolling through something. And I feel like that's not the way to look at it. There's also an element of delayed gratification. Like social media gives you instant gratification, constant dopamine hits. If you want to be successful in school, there is an element of like delayed gratification, like studying 10 hours for an exam and then taking it. That one exam doesn't necessarily pay off, but like the work ethic learned from doing it does. Mm -hmm. And if you only grow up with instant gratification things like social media, not so instant gratification things are going to be a lot more mature. Even for me, like if I go on social media for like an hour and I'm just like bombarded with quick content and then I want to journal. And even though like journaling helps my future self, I just don't want to do it. I'd rather watch another 10 minute YouTube video. Like it's just much less fun. You get less dopamine from it. It's the delayed process of it. Like you're going to go out and watch like 20 TikToks in the span that you're going to write one journal entry. Exactly. And then you're going to be like, okay, well that one journal entry gave me 10% dopamine. Those 12 TikToks gave me like 50% dopamine consistently. You value it differently. And it's also like what you want to do in the present isn't always aligned with what's best for your future self. Working out isn't always super fun, but it's good for your health. Social media incentivizes you to only care about your present self, like getting the dopamine hit. Whereas a lot of other things like school or things that actually get you like progress in life really require you to have knowledge to know that it will help your future self. And when you're so young, you don't really understand the consequences of your actions. It's just impossible to know like the four hours on social media is bad for you when you're eight. I really hope that stuff is done to regulate this. And like, I think social media adds so much to our lives in terms of connection and stuff, but it's just finding the balance. It's honestly finding that balance between the two. Like you'll be observing so many advertisements, commercials that will be just bashing other brands or other people. It's regrettable. I don't like seeing that. I feel like as a kid, you shouldn't have to see that. But there was actually a very funny ad that came out this week that was bashing another company. It was actually from Intel. Intel did an advertisement that was pretty much bashing Apple. Like they got a bunch of Apple fanboys, a bunch of people that were very into the Apple ecosystem, sat them down and then asked them pretty much everything they had problems with within that ecosystem. What do you think is missing from 
your laptop today. Touchscreen. Oh, well, there's a currently a thing on the market that has a touchscreen or like they have them list out all these different things that they wish their computer had or things that they really liked about their computer that they felt was missing from other computers. And they just immediately shot them down like, boom, like, no, no, like we have this. And then they gave them a full like expose, like showcase of all the different options, the customization that's available, all, all these other, it's just very, it was actually very smart targeting on Intel. It was so cringy though, dude. It was kind of like the Mac and PC ads. Those were very funny, but at the same time, it was very cringeworthy. They did it well. They did it well though, because they weren't like just trashing the other brand. They were like actually having a conversation and making it a joke. Intel very much just set out with this to like trash Apple. And also like the difference I think also is that with the Apple brand, it was like two actors, whereas this is supposed to be like, oh, it's real people Mm -hmm. and like they're interacting, but it seems like so fake. Like they show them a processor and the guy's face like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't be that stoked about it. I don't know. It seemed a bit disingenuous and a bit like too stoked or like certain quotes, like I'm a hundred percent loyal to Apple. Like certain things just felt played up and dramatized. Whereas like the Apple ads like intentionally felt that way. I think anytime when a company does like real people ads, to me, they come off a little fake. Dove or like other companies like that do it too, or they'll have them smell something. And I normally just don't get the best vibe from it. And then also Intel wasn't really showing like new tech. Yeah. These things have been around for a while. I find it hard to believe that these people would never have seen it before. Actually, you'd be surprised. I have a lot of friends who have no idea what a PC is like because they've only ever used Mac. That's true. That's true. Sometimes you're born into an ecosystem and that's actually absurd to talk about or to think about, but sometimes you're born into it. Like I was born into a very Apple-centric ecosystem. I did luck out for the first couple of years of my life by having a PC at home. But at the same time, after a couple of years, boom, Mac, boom, iPhone. I got a, an Android phone as my first phone. Everyone else in my family had an iPhone. And I was actually made fun of for having an Android phone because it was very much like brand loyalty from the get-go. Intel made this and it was very clear why you shouldn't go to Apple. And it was very much like a, pardon my French, a screw you to Apple creating the M1 chip because <laughs> Intel has never jumped in on the PC Mac battle. This is not like their first ad now against Apple. Apple is doing the M1 chip. So now like where they used to work with Intel a lot, they're going to stop working with Intel. So now Intel needs to like show that they're better. This was not it to me. I think it was okay, but I think it was like, like unnecessary, like didn't really accomplish what I think they set out to accomplish. Like I watched this as someone that's very into tech and like open to both ecosystems and having watched it, I was like, damn, like this is dumb. Apple's ad where they show the device in practice is so much more effective to me than Intel showing random people different innovations that we've seen for many years. That's very true too. I'll be pretty honest with you. I feel like anyone could probably tell you that there's a two-in-one computer with a touchscreen. Probably, yeah. I could probably ask my sister if she's seen it. She probably has. When it comes to this advertisement, it was funny because of the cringe, but it definitely wasn't something I liked this week. Speaking of, let's switch into stuff we like this week. Some cool stuff, some great stuff that we did really enjoy this week that we want to talk about with you guys. Jacqueline, you want to go first? Sure. Like concerts are kind of back now. I just watched Billie Eilish's performance of her Happier Than Ever song for the first time and the crowd was like insane. I guess I was stoked that people were so into the music and it was cool to like see it in the crowd environment. No, absolutely. I can only imagine. I know there's a ton of different ways of trying to make concerts more entertaining from a virtual standpoint. Like Fortnite did like the Travis Scott concert and there's even doing a couple other ones now too. Like it's become like all these different platforms are creating virtual stages where you can actually watch a concert from home and it's like kind of entertaining to actually see and like be there. It's kind of like a metaverse. Like you're kind of already there in the digital world, living through your avatar, like being at that concert, but virtually, which is kind of cool actually, in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was my first one. What about you? My first one's pretty basic. And I thought you were going to go with this. I watched Squid Game this week. I haven't seen it. Have you seen all like the memes and all this stuff on Instagram and TikTok and 
Everything about Squid Game? Like red light, green light? No, God, I'm like an 80-year-old. Wait, what is it about? Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to break it down for everyone listening if you haven't heard because you're living under a rock. <laughs> Squid Game has now become and is on track to be the most watched Netflix series ever. Oh my God. It's pretty much a Korean thriller show about pretty much people who are in financial situations that aren't ideal, like people who have issues with their finances in Korea. And, and it brings up a lot of actual real conversations about how hard it is it can be to get a job and how many people are living on like the brink of bankruptcy. And so it follows one character into this pretty much like a Hunger Games type situation. They're put into this room where they have to live for the for a couple of days. Every single day there's a new game and you have to play these games. But these games are all childhood games, childhood South Korean games you played growing up. Every single game is either you play it and you win or you get eliminated. And it goes from like a group of like 500 people almost to the final three who compete against each other in a final game. It's just absurd. Like it is a messed up, very, very entertaining show. It just kept you on your, the edge of your seat the entire time. And you develop this love for these characters because like you see the hardships that they're facing. You see like their stories. It was just so cool. Definitely go watch the trailer for it. I watched it in an English dub, but some people I know have been watching it in like the original Korean. And then we'll put like subtitle, subtitles on, but it was just absurd. It was like nine episodes. My roommates and I watched it every night for the past couple of days and we just finished it. Incredible. The story, amazing. The production, fantastic. Its ability to keep you keep your interest at all points of the show, absurd. And each episode's like an hour long. So to be able to keep my attention for an hour straight and to keep me on the edge of my seat every single time, it's just absurd. I loved it. It was so good. Damn, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it. I also watched some stuff this week, but definitely you've heard of it. I've been rewatching the Mission Impossible movies. Ooh. They're so good. I'm like stoked about the next one that's coming out, but it's it got delayed, so it won't be coming out for another year. Yeah. But I'm stoked. They're so good. Like honestly, the pacing in those movies and like the tech is just it's incredible. Seeing all the tech that Tom Cruise uses as he like plays that character, like it's just absurd, like how futuristic and how like spyware it really is, like how really spy tech it is. Like it's very reminiscent of like I guess those movies you'd watch like really so long ago where it'd be like talking about future tech and it was just so it felt so cool and so like unreal to see yeah that's actually definitely a good one i love mission impossible i've seen all of them absurdly good movies i love them yeah there's two more in the work so we'll have those in the next couple of years but let me throw it to you for your next one yeah absolutely so my next one is actually venom 2 i don't know jack if you've ever seen venom no i haven't dude i'm like so uncultured well no venom's more of a marvel thing so i know you aren't super into the marvel like cinematic universe but with the original spider-man that was the first introduction of venom with Tobey Maguire, and it was in the third movie wasn't done very well and then after they did the amazing spider-man they also did venom and they did it as its own standalone movie and it was very very well done i liked it a lot it didn't necessarily get the best ratings but at the same time like it's a marvel movie like i don't really care about the ratings i care about whether it's action filled and very much like the comics so it was really really cool to see that and then i saw venom 2 which just released theaters on friday i saw it with my roommates on sunday and it was absolutely incredible mostly because of the end credit scene which i will not spoil anything further i will just say that end credit scene if you are into the marvel cinematic universe is everything wow it is everything you've ever wanted from a from a post-credit scene it was oh my goodness it was so good i am so excited for the upcoming marvel movies now yeah dude i love that they like build a world around their characters mm-hmm. like, i i don't watch all the marvel movies but i love that like everything is like so interconnected and like the plot line threads through on so many different movies i can't imagine how hard it must be to like craft that world oh absolutely it's it's absurd how how awesome they make it well my last one for this week is actually a tiktoker's account but kind of a musician charlie pooth i think he has such a good handle on tiktok music promotion and he often like shows how an idea for a song gets crafted and how he produces it mm-hmm. and they're like fascinating to watch but 
also just from like a business perspective, I think that it's so smart because it instantly gets the song a lot of traction and they're very shareable. He just has a really good sense of how to use the platform. No, absolutely. He's absolutely incredible with everything he does. Actually, he was going to be my next uh, stuff I like this week as well. No way. Oh my God, that's so random. I've been obsessed with his music, his new music that he's been coming out with. He actually just came out with one with Elton John and it was honestly fantastic. Like this episode was, I mean, I think it was pretty fantastic. And if you guys liked what you guys heard this episode, make sure to drop a five-star review. But with that all being said, I think that's what we're going to end off for this week. We're hitting yeah. the end of our threshold here. So I'm going to say huge thank you to Adil Constantine for our intro and outro music, as well as a huge, huge thank you to Luke Fabricatori for the amazing editing that he's been doing. He's honestly been crushing it. And I want to thank you guys, you know, for listening and for, you know, dropping that rating on Apple Podcasts, because I know you did it because we're friends. We're, we're besties at this point. We literally need you two to continue doing the podcast. So exactly. Please do it. If you really, really like the show, maybe share the episode. Maybe you don't have a lot of friends that are interested in tech. Maybe this can be their first foray into it. Thank you guys so much for listening to this one and catch you next week, 7 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Eastern. See ya.